Shabbat Shalom. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to worship Hashem. Um, I wanted to note that today is the 14th day, which is two weeks of the Omer. We normally say a blessing on the evening of every day as we count the 50 days towards Shavuot from Yom Habikarim, the day of first fruits. We say, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melch HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu Al Svirat HaOmer. Today is 14 days, which is two weeks of the Omer. You can feel free to continue the counting of the Omer as we look forward to Shavuot, which will be in another five weeks. Um, if you want to see where the command is, it is in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 15, where we are told to count the 50 days of the Omer. Before I continue, there's also one other thing I wanted to mention. The uh, Tree of Life Bible has now arrived at my doorstep, and it can arrive at yours fairly soon. I just want to make you aware of this new Messianic Jewish translation that is being published by a mainline publisher, Baker Publishing House. It will um, no doubt become very well known in the Messianic world and will be a very useful tool. So if you are interested in getting a copy, uh, please let me know. We're working out a way that we can get some copies here at the Kehila for you to use. Of course, keep in mind that the complete Jewish study Bible is coming out, Mr. Stone tells me, in October. You might want to hold off for that as another alternative, because that will also be a great resource. Our Parsha this morning, however, to turn to our scripture, which will actually be in Ha'igeret al-Haromim, the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, is Acharemot, as our brother Steve mentioned, and begins with a very serious Tone because this is Acharemot, after the death of two of Aaron's sons. And it introduces the topic of purity. It introduces the topic of righteousness for those who are following Hashem, those who are serving the Lord. And when we come to the Haftarah, we see the same theme in the book of Ezekiel. And we see somewhat of the same theme as we get to the book of Romans, where Rav Shaul is addressing the Kehilah in the city of Rome. And to remind you once again of the context in which Rav Shaul is writing this letter, he is known to believers around the Roman Empire because of his very high profile and revolutionary service, which is to bring this besorah, this good news of the gospel, far beyond the confines of the Jewish world, although he always begins and prioritizes the Jewish world, but into the world of the nations, people of every tongue, tribe, and language, because Rome is a empire that embraces many different cultures, continents, and types of people. And as he brings this message, he also wants to bring this message to the city of 
Rome. And as we have gone through the book of Romans, his letter to this Kehila in Rome, we are aware very much that this is written just a few years after all the Jews have been cast out of the city of Rome, but have now obviously regathered. The Kehila in Rome has gone through very difficult times. Like any Kehila in the Roman Empire, pretty much it has been based on the initial congregation which has been led by those who know the Torah, those who know the ways of Hashem, those who have been raised in the ways of righteousness, and has been led by them and taught by them, but now they have lost their leaders. The leaders have come back in, but now enough time has elapsed that the entire structure of the Kehillah and the relationships within it have changed And people are no longer looking so much to the Jewish believers for leadership. And as Rav Shaul addresses this Kehilah, where he has no particular claim of authority, other than that he is known and counted as one one of the shlichim, the apostles. As Rav Shaul writes them, he is very concerned, as he has always been, for Israel, for the people of Israel, and how they might go on to serve Hashem. But he is also concerned about something that is far greater because he realizes that the Lord has done great things for us, as we say in our prayers. He has done great things for Israel, and he has done great things for the nations. The revelation of Messiah, Yeshua, has changed everything. And he knows now and preaches that this Besorah, this good news, is for all. And so he addresses, in the first chapter, the issues of the righteousness of God, which is coming to the nations. And then he talks about how it comes to the Jewish people, and yet how the Jews, too, have fallen short. And he deals with the issues of righteousness, not in a theological sense from an ivory tower, as so many preachers and theologians have done over the centuries, philosophizing and theologizing on the basis of what Rav Shaul has written. But he is actually writing to a real situation where the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome know that they are brothers and sisters, but they are struggling in how they relate to one another. And he reminds them that all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, are all falling short of the glory of God. How we are all dependent on the grace of God and on the righteousness that he gives. And by the time Rav Shaul gets to Romans chapter 5, he is contrasting Adam, the first man, and Mashiach, the one who has come, a new man who unites us all. In Romans chapter 6, he talks about Torah, because this is the big issue that divides the Jews from those who are not Jewish. Rav Shaul is passionate about the Torah. But as he writes to the Romans, he is aware that not all of them have been raised in it and not all of them are beholden to keep it in the same way as the nation of Israel. 
And so he talks about Torah and the importance of it, but the overriding power and wonderful of the grace of God. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about the Torah yet more, and, and, and he has nothing ill to say of it, but he talks about the, um, the fact that we are so often torn and tempted to live according to a different kind of Torah, a Torah law that can rule our members. But this is what brings him to Romans chapter 8. And I'm giving this introduction and taking a little time on it because Romans chapter 8 is a very crucial chapter and it's a beautiful chapter. I would encourage you to read it more often if you would or read it when you get home this Shabbat and through the week because it is such a beautiful chapter that reminds us of such beautiful truths of what Hashem has done for us. But it is not just a chapter written in a vacuum. It is not a chapter written at the end of a section, Romans chapters 1 to 8, that basically sums up Romans. Not at all. In in actuality, Romans chapter 8 is the the natural result of what Rav Shaul has been saying and leading up to, and it leads us into the chapters which are very important to us as Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles as well, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Rav Shaul deals head-on with the issue of Israel and its unbelief an issue that has obviously been a point of controversy among the early believers in Rome with those who are not Jewish turning to those who are Jews and saying, why have more Jews not come to Messiah like we Gentiles have? Rav Shaul is bringing things out of the small picture and the small struggles that are situational to the Kehillah in Rome. And he is drawing back and giving us the great big picture of what Hashem is doing with Israel, with the nations, and with each one of us. And so we have two laws. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah, Yeshua. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah, Yeshua, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what was impossible for the Torah, since it was weakened on account of the flesh, God has done sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Ruach. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Ruach set their minds on the things of the Ruach. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Ruach, the spirit, is life and shalom, P-
peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit itself to the law of God, for it cannot. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the natural result of Romans chapter 7, where Rav Shaul has talked about our natural desire to do things that are not according to Torah, things that are not pleasing to God. And how almost inevitably it seems, or inevitably, we find ourselves unable to follow Hashem. The Greek word there is sarx. It's uh, maybe somewhat of a comparable word, but not quite to the Hebrew word nephesh, which is soul or body, which is the entire person. If we live according to ourselves, we will find that we do not live according to the will of God. There is a need to live by an entirely different principle. And this is what Rav Shaul is saying in chapter 8 and verse 4, that if we live in, according to the Ruach, the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us who do not walk, walk according to the flesh, but according to the Ruach. There is a way, he tells the Romans, and he tells us as a result, that we might live in a way that will be pleasing to God. It's not necessarily, he's not saying that, as so many have said, that the Torah is now absolutely irrelevant. That is not what Rav Shaul is saying. But he's pointed out the fact that the Torah itself is not going to help us ultimately to please Hashem. But walking according to the Ruach is going to result in us bringing glory to him. There are two kinds of mindsets, Rav Shaul tells us in the following verses. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 17. And I'll continue from verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Ruach. If indeed the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Ruach of Messiah, he does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Ruach of the one who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, The one who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Ruach who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we do not owe anything to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Ruach you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For all who are led by the Ruach Elohim... These are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall again into fear. Rather, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Ruach himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. 
And Rav Shaul ends on that note that reminds us again of the context. There has been suffering in Rome. There's been difficulty. But ultimately, we are all to be glorified with him. The Ruach of Messiah. We see in Philippians 2 and verse 5, Rav Shaul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. But what is the Ruach? What is the spirit of Messiah? It is far more than the mind of Messiah. Interestingly, in the, uh, in the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah, for Genesis, rabbis say, looking back over Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. They say that this alludes to the Spirit of Messiah. As you read, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. It's one of those many rabbinical sayings and connections that we could say quite clearly hint at the supernatural nature of Messiah Yeshua, far more than just a man. This is the spirit of Messiah, even the rabbis acknowledge in creation. But here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, this is the Ruach of God and the Ruach of Messiah that dwells within us. There is an aspect of Messiah's spirit that dwells in us. It is that aspect that calls out to us when we are wandering away from him and that calls us back to him, that reminds us of the truth, that reminds us of what we have left. It is the Ruach of Messiah that draws us to God, to the Father. As Messiah said in the Gospel of John, I will send you a comforter and he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I would dare to say that Many of us here today, if not almost all of us, are very much aware of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God who drew us to Him, who keeps us in relationship with God the Father that rests upon us. And so Rav Shaul does say this very strong thing, that if anyone does not have the Ruach of Messiah, He does not belong to him. I remember years ago when I was dating Deborah, I went to visit her in Everett, Washington. And I would sleep in the back of her car and she would stay in her condominium for reasons of propriety when I went down there on the weekends. One weekend I arrived down there in my uh, old Volvo and walked up to the door, and there were some Mormon missionaries coming right after me, and I had the flowers for Deborah and all the rest. And I remember we had a long conversation with them, and it was quite interesting. They were young and nice people. Um, When I came to the Spirit and mentioned that 
Yes, as a believer, I'm very aware and, and know of the Spirit of God in my life. The blankness of expression on their face was quite clear. They knew of no such thing. They experienced no such thing. It's a wonderful thing to know the Spirit of God. It's not that we walk around on a cloud, that we have dreams and visions all the time, and that we're living in another reality. It is more that awareness that God lives within us. And while we may not be aware of the Spirit of God every day, nevertheless we are aware and do know that he lives within us. And so if Messiah is in you, Rav Shaul says in verse 10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And what an encouragement, something that Rav Shaul says elsewhere, that the Ruach HaKodesh in us is a seal of what God has done within us. And we know because we have the Ruach HaKodesh that even though we may sin and our bodies are dead because of sin, even though we know that we are his. And what an encouragement and what a reassurance. There's a lot of people today who will get on the television and they will give you false assurances and false gospels and for false truths and tell you that, uh, you know, God wants you healthy, wealthy and wise and will solve all of your problems. That's not what Rav Shaul is saying here. He's saying that in the midst of it all, in the struggles of life, and the people in Rome are very aware of the struggles of life. And Rav Shaul is very aware of the struggles and difficulties of life. His whole life has been involved in struggle. In the midst of it all, God is there. That's where you know the reality of the Spirit of God. It's not in otherworldliness. It's in this world. And if the Ruach of the one who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Ruach who dwells in you. We have a wonderful Ruach, powerful, the one who raised Messiah Yeshua to through the um, from the dead through the Ruach testifies to that. And so Rav Shaul tells these believers in Rome, maybe tells us too, whatever our conflicts might be with one another, whatever the difficulties are that we might be facing today, relationally, so then, brothers and sisters, in verse 12, we don't owe anything to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Let us live according to the Spirit. They know, the Romans know, that they are Jew and Gentile, all falling short of the glory of God. And they know that it is by God's grace that they stand and that they are there together, worshiping in Rome. And so he encourages them to live together, but more importantly, for all ages and for all places, to live according to the Spirit of God. We might sometimes wish that 
God could just change our nature so that we might never want to fail him again. So that we might never sin again. In fact, there are people who preach that there is a certain point in your life as a believer where you will have a amazing, maybe traumatic in a good sense, experience with God. And then after that point, you will not sin anymore. You will be sinless. It's, um, it's actually something that's been taught uh, quite extensively in certain circles, that you can reach this point. It would be wonderful, but that's not the way that God works. In fact, um, Maimonides, who is a very interesting and thought-provoking uh, scholar, to read. He deals in his guide for the perplexed with why then why did God give us uh, why doesn't God just release us from our evil nature? And he says there's this important principle of God where God himself says, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me. So in a sense, God is on the same side of us as we are on this. He would love us to be completely um, devoted to him. But Maimonides says, and there are things in which Maimonides is absolutely uh, right, and there are things in which he's absolutely wrong, as with any human writer, and uh, particularly we would take exception to his rejection of Messiah Yeshua. Nevertheless, we read he has a point here. He says, if it was part of God's will to change at his desire the nature of any person, the mission of the prophets and the giving of the law would have been altogether superfluous. And it's absolutely true. If God was just about changing our natures, then we wouldn't need his revelation in the word. We wouldn't need to know of his great plan of salvation. We wouldn't need to know about the righteousness of God. There's a very real sense in which what was meant for evil has been turned to good because the fact that there is evil in the world actually exposes us to the need for righteousness. And we can see it shining ever brighter against the darkness eliminating the darkness and speaking to us. There is a righteous God. And because we have this evil inclination within us, um, different people will use different theological terms with different nuances. Some people might uh, re use the terminology of um, total corruption, for example, and uh, original sin. Nevertheless, we are agreed that we have within us this evil inclination. Because we have that, we have an opportunity that we never would have had otherwise. It is our opportunity to turn to God in love, to turn to him in obedience, to seek to live our lives to the glory of God. That is a tremendous opportunity that, in a sense, would not have happened if evil had not come into the world. These things are somewhat a little bit too difficult to delve into too deeply because we would wish in some ways that evil was not in the world. Too much evil has happened 
and is happening in our world today for us to be happy and settled with it in our spirits. But nevertheless, God turns all things to good. And this is what Rav Shaul begins to unfold to the Romans in their difficult situation in the following verses, starting with verse 18. There is a hope, an incomparable hope, for all creation and for all of those who are redeemed. Starting verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers birth pains until now. There is a great plan of salvation. And this touches on another issue that I think, especially as Messianic believers, we need to get our arms around. The salvation of God is not something just for us. It is not just for each individual who puts his faith in God. But there is another sense of salvation that encompasses all of Israel. That day is still to come. Rav Shaul will talk about it in Romans chapter 9 to 11. But the day is coming when the Goel, the Redeemer, will sit on King David's throne in Jerusalem and Israel will be redeemed. God's salvation, his redemption, is bigger than we might have thought. And in fact, Rav Shaul goes beyond that. And he actually says, all of creation, this story of salvation is great and huge. And so sometimes we might wonder why when you share or when we shared the good news with a Jewish person and, and we talk about individual faith in Messiah and individual redemption, somehow the message doesn't quite get through. And part of the answer is that Jewish people are very aware of the bigger picture, the healing of Israel and, and righteousness for Israel, justification for Israel coming to pass, blessing for the entire world. A large percentage of the Jewish pre people who have given up ever hoping that Messiah would come again are nevertheless devoted to what is called tikkun olam, the healing of not just the world, but creation. It's a very important thing in Jewish thinking. And more important, it seems, as time goes on. It's no surprise that Jewish people are some of the greatest philanthropists in terms of giving and percentage of income of any people in the world. There is this understanding of redemption for the entire 
universe, ultimately. And so, we look forward to this redemption. There is hope for creation. And Rav Shaul knows that God's plan is great. It is great for the world. And it is also great for us. And so in verse 23, it's not only creation, but even ourselves. So he's inverted it. We always talk about salvation for ourselves first, and then the world. Rav Shaul has inverted it in this chapter. Now he turns from creation to ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Ruach. And we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption, the redemption of our body. For in hope, verse 24, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We have had an adoption. We have had the, we have had the promise of the redemption of our bodies. And some among us, our bodies are failing as we get older. Um, I didn't realize I had knees until about five years ago, and all of a sudden I could feel them. Um, some of us are scheduled for surgery. Some of, well, probably nowadays, maybe even a majority of us are on one medication or another. We, we are suffering in our bodies, and yet we know that we, our body will be redeemed. We know that there is a hope. Of course, this verse here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 24 is very reminiscent of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, which describes and defines what hope is. It's evidence of things that are unseen. We know something is there because of the hope of those who hope in it. Because we see it, Rav Shaul says, in verse 24, or rather, um, because we do not see it. For if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly await for it with perseverance. This is an assured hope that we are waiting for. It's evident to us because of the Ruach HaKodesh who lives within us. And so as we draw to the latter verses of Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 26, we see the role of the Ruach. The Ruach helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. I think many of us have experienced that. The Ruach himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. We don't have to get our words right. Sometimes we don't even have to know what to say. I think some of you may remember a book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez, or Jabez as people used to say it, The Prayer of Jabez. And it basically the idea, if you pray this prayer every day, the Lord will expand your tents. He will give you what you ask for and, for what, and what you desire. As if there is something miraculous in the specific words of a specific prayer. Romans chapter 8 says, 
You don't need to have the exact right words. Thank goodness we have the Spirit who intercedes for us, who makes up for our lack. We don't need to be great theologians, and I think great theologians probably get theology um, about as wrong as the average person in any congregation. They just have fancier reasons for why they or we are wrong. Um, We don't have to have all the theology. The Ruach intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And that too is reassuring. The Ruach, if he groans like that, cares. There is compassion there. There is empathy in those words when the Ruach groans for us. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Ruach because he intercedes for the Kedoshim, the the sanctified ones, the saints, according to the will of God. We are greatly blessed to have the Ruach HaKodesh, and Rav Shaul points us towards him and encourages us. This brings us to verses 28 to 30, which has been so encouraging to so many of us and which, to which I've already alluded today. Now we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God works all things to good. The Romans are struggling in their kehilah. There are social problems. How do you deal with this influx of returning Jewish refugees to Rome who are attempting to put their lives back together and who are stressed and upset when they find that they're no longer respected as they once were in the kehilah? Um, How do you deal with the interpersonal conflicts that are happening in that keilah, never mind the financial and social difficulties that they're going through? And Rav Shaul reminds us, God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's a promise to those who love God. It's a promise to those who are called according to his purpose. It's something that we can lay hold on and say, I know that in the midst of all the troubles that I go through, that there is a redemption coming, that there is blessing coming, and that all of this is, in a sense, a package deal. And so Rav Shaul talks about predestination and being called and justification and glorification, all those lovely words that that we love to parse and figure out exactly what they mean. But we get the picture. God's going to bring good out of it. He's going to bring blessing, even out of the great difficulties that we are going through. I guess as I say that, the struggles of the people in Fort McMurray comes to mind. We look at things like that and we think there is a situation that is absolutely difficult and horrible for 
almost 100,000 people who've been relocated from their homes and have some who've lost everything. It's a very difficult time. And the whole nation, in fact, I think uh, the whole world is watching what is happening in northern Alberta right now. But we who know God know that God will bring good out of it. The stories may not come out right away. The stories may not come out in the press. But God brings good out of evil. That is the kind of God that we have. Which is why Rav Shaul says in verse 31, What shall we say in view of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's powerful. Our Messiah Yeshua said that the gates of Hades would not stand against the community of the redeemed, against the Kehilah. It would not stand. In Greek, the ecclesia. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is victorious. We will get through this. Now he's, you can see how Rav Shaul is now going to move to the topic of Israel and the redemption of Israel in the following chapters. If God is for us, who can be against us? God can take the worst of situations and he can turn it to good. Here we are, we struggle, as he's dealt with in previous chapters, we struggle with sin. We struggle with our inability to keep Torah, much as we might seek to live lives that are glorifying to God. But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The Jewish people in Rome have already had charges laid against them. Whether because of Crestus or Christus, we're not quite sure. Um, nevertheless, the Jews had been cast out of Rome. They've had charges laid against them. But who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No one can judge us other than God. Who is the one who condemns? That's a good question. We don't like condemnation. Well, the very one who condemns is the one who has given himself for us. It is Messiah who died and moreover was raised and is now at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. And so what was meant to be by Hasatan, the greatest triumph for evil, has been turned into the greatest good as Messiah was raised from the dead and we can see in him the one who is our judge. The very one who is actually forgiving us, who is justifying us and interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing will separate us from his love. There are many things that we could go through. Rav Shaul lists them here. There is death, there is tribulation, there is distress, there is starvation, there is 
the inability to clothe oneself properly, to be in danger of our lives, to be in danger of war. These are all things that happen in our world today with more believers suffering for their faith today than at any time in history. All of these things, we might cry out in the words of the psalmist, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have a great hope. It's a great truth that Paul brings to us as he speaks. Rav Shaul, the great um, writer and the great shliach. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The secret is not great. This isn't a triumphalist kind of message from Rav Shaul. We're not as if we are all on... um, you know, one side of a football pitch or soccer pitch or, or just rooting for the Canucks going rah, rah, rah. In reality, this is the type of conquering where we overcome because of the great and almighty God. It is through him who loved us. And neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah, our Lord. All these things may have come upon us, and all of us have suffered various difficulties in our lives, and it's inevitable that we will suffer more and greater difficulties as time goes on. But in the midst of it, there is the love of God displayed to us in Messiah Yeshua. It's that love of God displayed through Messiah Yeshua that gives us such a passion to introduce Messiah Yeshua to our Jewish world and to the whole world as well. It's that love of Messiah Yeshua that makes heavenly places in eastern India um, for people like Stuart to document and and minister in. Um, It is that love of Messiah that transforms the world. And we cannot be separated from it. We have a wonderful, wonderful news to share with our world. Avinu Sheva Shamayim, we thank you for Messiah Yeshua, the one who has come to us, who is the greatest um, evidence of your love towards us that we could ever imagine or hope for, and the one who has given us his spirit to intercede for us, and who indeed intercedes for us himself. We thank you for our Messiah, and Lord, we ask that you might enable us to grasp his love and to walk according to it in our lives as we Return the love that you have bestowed upon us, upon you, and give you our love and our devotion. We thank you, O Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen.